Well, what a time to be alive, hey? Uh, Despite all the normal things that are going on, like the birds that are singing outside here as I do this and uh, the cloud cover from last night slowly being burnt off by the sun. There's a lot that's happening in our world that is not normal at the moment, isn't there? Um, And so, you know, I I hope that you're all right wherever you are. And I also hope that uh, if there's any way that the church can help you if you're not all right, that you would get in touch with us here at Cornerstone. I'm going to be um, giving a message right now that I've given um, in a form before, um, but I'm giving again as a part of our Cornerstone Signature series. And um, it, it springs out of an article that really struck me a few years ago um, from the New York Times Magazine, and I'll throw a link below the video here if you want to have a look at it. But it, really centered around a a series of photographs of artifacts that were recovered from the ice north of Canada. And these artifacts uh, came from an expedition, an expedition in 1845, came from an era where it was really difficult for um, the European settlement that was happening on the East Coast of North America to have any sort of contact with the developing settlements on the West Coast and then the Pacific Ocean beyond that. So traveling from Europe to the East Coast of North America was relatively straightforward. It was a boat ride across the Atlantic. But because of how prohibitive overland travel was in North America. I mean, it's a huge piece of land with great mountain ranges, deep rivers, um, sometimes understandably hostile indigenous populations. Uh, The best way to get there was still by boat, right? But in order to sail to the west coast of the United States and the Pacific beyond, Uh, you had to kind of go all the way around the bottom of the American continent. So like down uh, around Chile and and Argentina down there, those are are tricky waters in and of themselves. So it it was tricky to get to the West Coast and the Pacific beyond that. And there developed, existed uh, a kind of a hope, a dream, maybe the idea that perhaps there was a better passage, a better way of getting to the Pacific um, up through the icy waters at the top of the American continent. And even before such a passage had been charted, it had developed a kind of mythical status and been named the Northwest Passage. Anyway, in 1845, to get back to those artifacts that I mentioned. In 1845, a man named John Franklin led a British naval expedition from England to try and chart a course through the Northwest Passage. He took two ships, 130 men. And as it turned out, not one of them 
returned. The ships became stuck in the ice. And the men in small parties, it seems, uh, began to, to die as they tried to hike their way across the ice south to some help. And they left these artifacts on the way. And um, I've always been fascinated by the idea of the Northwest Passage, the mythology of the Northwest Passage, because it's a picture of doing something better, uh, doing something new, not accepting the kind of standard wisdom, but striking out in courage to find a better way. And you know, there's so many elements of life where we are required to do that, aren't there? Where there is a challenge before us. Is there, if we are willing to take a risk, a better way of doing something that is being done currently? And of course, because, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm someone who loves the church, who works for the church, uh, I often think about the mission of the church and, and, and bigger than that, the mission of God in the world relative to that question. Is there a better way of doing the things that are getting done that need to be done? When I talk to people who don't believe in Jesus in my world, um, I find that there are obstacles, right? There are obstacles to Jesus. There are obstacles to God's love. And so often the nature of those obstacles is not in the nature of Jesus himself. And it's not uh, in the nature of God's love for people, but it's connected to things to do with Christianity, their experience of Christianity, their experience of the church. And oftentimes, you know, I, I really empathize. I, I really understand the nature of uh, these kind of obstacles, the nature of the resistance that people might have to Christianity and to the church. And it strikes me that so often um, what people are objecting to is, is culture, right? It, it's, it's Christian culture. It's the culture of the church, which, you know, always uh, has developed with the best of intentions. And most of the time, I think, has real value. And yet, somehow, is something not exactly the same as Jesus? Is something that somehow very often takes us a step back from God's love for people. We can't help but be Christians in a particular way. We can't help because of our humanity, because of our sinfulness, oftentimes. We can't help but sort of mediate God's love in a way that isn't always helpful for people. We can't help, it would seem, but re-image Jesus for people in a way that isn't exactly true to who Jesus is. The things that people trip over so often when I'm talking to them about these things, about God, about Christianity, about the church and so forth. 
they're often, <laughs> you know, problems that they've encountered with human beings who have let them down in their portrayal of who Jesus is in their communication of God's love for them and the world. And so I, I've thought of the Northwest Passage as a picture for that way that might exist between our cultural Christianity in our context, the 21st century in Australia, and the love of God. As though, you know, perhaps there is a way of clearing these obstacles that come with cultural Christianity, that come with, with the way that the church goes about its business in the world. And, 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 and what really matters Jesus, the heart of God for people. And there's a couple of ways that uh, I think the story of Franklin's expedition serves as a kind of what not to do illustration that I, that I want to pick up with us uh, as you listen to uh, this message this morning. It would seem to me that if there is any way of charting a better course, a more direct course between where people are at and God's love, it'd be worth taking a risk for, wouldn't you agree? It'd be worth throwing the kitchen sink at um, for the sake of God's love. Despite the bravery of Franklin and the men that joined him on their expedition. Uh, I was reading a commentator called Roxburgh who, who picked up on the fact that um, they were ill-equipped for the expedition in certain ways. And in some ways, this uh, sort of state of being ill-equipped was that they were equipped in the wrong way. Let me read you uh, a quick quote from Roxburgh. The manifest of Franklin's journey is a telling description of what these adventurers understood to be important and necessary about the journey. It captures the narrative in which they lived and narratives that would destroy them because it made little sense in the environment of the Arctic. Listen to this. Franklin equipped his ship with a 1200 volume library. There was a hand organ that played 50 tunes. There was um, China place settings on board the ships and expensive silverware. Um, Roxburgh goes on, these early Victorian era Englishmen took their world with them. So important were these elements of normal life in England. However, they only carried, despite all this, despite uh, all these trappings that they bought with them, they only carried a 12-day supply of coal for their auxiliary engines, even though they knew that the journey could take months. Deep inside them were habits and customs of their world which determined what went with them on that expedition. And finally, when they abandoned their ship to seek help, 
Their bodies were found in the ice fields in shallow graves, sometimes with their silverware beside them. Despite their brave commitment to explore a new way through the Northwest Passage, Franklin and his crew went with the assumptions of 19th century English world, and those assumptions then killed them in the space into which they had entered. You know, I wonder if sometimes we aren't taking on our mission as the church, as Christians, trappings of a bygone world. Um, the world that we move into, the world that our mission sends us into in 21st century Australia, perhaps is not the world that our cultural Christianity has equipped us for. Is it possible that as you consider God's love sending you into the world, that you are feeling loaded upon you a heap of expectations, a heap of baggage that doesn't best position you for what it is that God wants you to be about in the world? If God is all about you communicating his love to the world, bringing people un to himself. Is it possible that we as Christians have been conditioned, rightly or wrongly, by a whole heap of expectations, a whole heap of ideas that, that don't really help us on our mission to reach people with God's love in the 21st century? Brings me to the second point that I found really useful from, from uh, the story of Franklin. So that first one that, you know, are there ways that the church in the 21st century here in Australia is, is a little bit like Franklin and his expedition, taking a whole heap of unnecessary stuff into a challenging situation. Um, this second point, which is connected, is um, it, it took years actually for um, people who were trying to understand what happened to Franklin and his men um, to bother asking the Inuit people who lived up in that part of Canada around a place called King William Island. And eventually, so more recently, when, uh, when the Inuit population from that part of the world were consulted, uh, it came to light that, yeah, they, they had a memory in their oral history of that expedition. And in fact, they told a story of a hunting party, an Inuit hunting party coming across a group of Franklin's men. And out there on the ice, they did a trade. So these men were, were starved uh, by that stage. And they traded with uh, this Inuit hun hunting party a knife for some of the food that they had with them. And the account given by this um, Inuit history is that the Inuit um, hunting party looked on in bemusement as uh, these men uh, from Franklin's expedition proceeded to, to melt down the blubber that they had just obtained in the trade in order to cook the little bit of meat that came with the blubber. Um, the Inuit men uh, could actually have helped 
Franklin's um, men get to safety. And a part of that for them was to eat this nutritious blubber, which was such a huge part of their diet, was so crucial to them surviving in these harsh environments. But no, again, um, they, Franklin's men, they, they, they stayed with the wisdom that they had. They, they weren't accustomed to eating seal blubber or whale blubber. For them, it was just fuel and, and they wasted it in order to eat just a little bit of familiar meat. I, um, in relation to that story, think about the words of uh, one of the great evangelical leaders of our time, a man named John Stott, and towards the end of his life, uh, he wrote about the need for Christianity in the West to do what he called double listening. He said, if Christianity is going to survive in the West, we need to listen, yes, of course, to the scripture and the tradition of the church. But he said, we also really need to listen to our culture because he suggested that there had opened up a gap between the relevance of scripture as we understood it and the problems and challenges of our age. As though we as Christians are very often living somewhere in the past uh, where we're so reticent to engage with the lives of our neighbors who don't believe in Jesus that we don't really understand them. We don't recognize that we're doing cross-cultural mission because our non-Christian friends and neighbors are living in a post-Christian culture. I feel like this story of Franklin's men not actually asking the Inuit hunting party how they should go about things, what they should eat, where they should go, but just assuming um, and then trudging onto their deaths it is, not, is not a little instructive for us. Do we, as God's people, take seriously a call to understand our neighbours in order that we might reach them? Are we listening both to scripture and to Christian tradition and also to our neighbours, their culture, trying to understand them so we can understand how God's love might break into their world? I love uh, this story from the fourth chapter of John's Gospel where uh, Jesus has an encounter with this woman in, in, in Samaria, a Samaritan woman at a well. And there's lots about this story that is, um, is, is, is kind of uh, tense, right? Uh, a Jewish man, um, according to the religious custom of, of Jesus' time, really shouldn't be speaking with the Samaritan woman because they were outside of the culture of God's people. And what's more, he asks this woman to draw water from the well for him. And he's transgressing a whole bunch of expectations. And especially so when it kind of comes out in their conversation that 
she is probably someone who doesn't have the best reputation and the best standing in her community. It seems like uh, she's someone who has had multiple husbands, multiple partners, and that was something that was definitely looked down on at the time, even in her community, let alone in the very puritanical Jewish community. And um, so Jesus is talking to this woman and, and she's impressed by the fact that she doesn't have to tell him about who she is and about her past. He just sees it. He says, I know, I know you. And he proceeds to tell her um, about the, the secrets of her life, about the shameful, the shameful in that cultural context history that she has. And um, it, the woman remarks uh, to Jesus, I can see that you're a prophet. And she says, our ancestors, this is in verse 20 of chapter 4, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Um, but you Jews, so he, he's different culturally and religiously, you Jews, you claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And it says that Jesus replies to her woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, Jesus says, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. You know, I feel like in Jesus's remarks there, he 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 charts something of a northwest passage, uh, especially for for his disciples, especially for his his Jewish audience, because he's willing to sort of push past and through all those kind of cultural obstacles, the do's and don'ts of his Jewish religious practice, in order to share God's love with this woman who so desperately needs it and if you read on in the story you'll you'll know that this woman runs down to her community and she tells her community even if she's something of a pariah amongst them about this encounter that she has with Jesus and it says that her community comes up the hill towards the well where Jesus is sitting with his disciples and that many in that community come to recognize Jesus as um, someone who can save them. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Hey, the challenge I think before us is to be a people in the mold of Christ, to be a people brave enough to chart a course somewhere new, brave enough to consider our own faith, the content of our own lives and ask that very difficult question, how much of this is truly about Christ's love and how much of it might be 
getting in the way of my sharing God's love with my neighbours and friends and family who don't yet know it. I'm going to leave it there, but I'll pray very quickly before I finish up. Hey God, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for how you accommodated us culturally, how you accommodated to us in our state as human beings when you came as Jesus uh, the baby, when you lived and walked amongst human beings. I pray, Lord, that we would be people like that who, who aren't compromisers for the sake of um, having an easier life, for the sake of just fitting in, but who are people who are willing to think very hard and consider very hard what might be going on in our life, what might be going on even in the way that we worship you, in the way that we live out our faith, that might put us at a distance from those who really need you. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be dragging unnecessary things out into your mission field to reach people that uh, you love, that we would take what we really need for the mission. Lord, I pray that we would be good listeners. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't die in the ice, uh, but we would be learning new ways to achieve your mission in this world. Amen. Hey, God bless you. See you later.